Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome again to Enfleshed by Watch and Walk Ministry. As I always say, um, this program aims at helping all of us uh, to apply the teachings of the Bible. My name is Ebenezer Edujemfi. I'm here once again with my uh, regular panel members. I have Jenny Chilton, uh, Truett graduate, and um, Children's Minister at Kavi uh, Baptist Church here in uh, Waco. I, I have Philip Thomas pursuing his master's in music at Baylor uh, University here. And then I have um, Sam Steele. Uh, Sam Steele is a music minister at First Baptist Church, Elmont, and also a Truett um, student. Um, and I also have Richard Sapon, uh, curriculum and um, training manager and also, he's a Bible study teacher at Grace Baptist Church in Ghana. Um, I'm so glad that we all be able to join, be able to join all of us um, this afternoon for this discussion. Um, today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 27 to 37. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 37. I would, before I start, I remember saying something about Dr. Garland's quotation, and I'll just paraphrase something uh, in that commentary where he says that when Jesus appears as God with us, uh, the center of gravity shifts to him. Um, so uh, even though the law and the prophets uh, remain valid, Jesus becomes the canon by which to gauge obedience to the scripture and is the sole interpretive guide uh, for scripture. So we're going to look at what it means um, when we say that Jesus is the key for unlocking the meaning of the law and prophet. Uh, we started this whole discussion uh, from John chapter 1, I mean, some weeks ago, where we looked at the word of God as a person, uh, that's Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. And then we tried to use that as a framework to uh, discuss or analyze Matthew chapter 5. And we'll be doing a uh, discussion on Matthew chapter 5 for the past um, six weeks. And last week, we learned that... Um, even though as believers we can be angry, but when we are angry, we have to pause and reflect and then look at the scriptural, the Christian way of expressing our anger. And that discussion was really helpful. And today we're going to look at, as I said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 37. Uh, before um, Philip reads the scripture for us, uh, let me pray with us, then we can start. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this afternoon. We thank you for the gift of life. We pray in Jesus' name as we are about to discuss your word, that you open our eyes, that we can see, so that we can see wonderful things in your word and help us to apply things that we see in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So, Philip, Matthew yeah. 5, 27 to 37. Yes, here it goes. So I'm reading from NKJV version. Uh, from verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, 
whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is a, the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and you know, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Whatever is more than these comes from the evil one. Thank you, Philip, for the reading. And Jenny, I'll start with you. Uh, let's look at 27, 28, um, first of all, and help me understand what is Jesus trying to do here? And last week we looked at anger and murder. Now it's, he's looking at lust and adultery. Help us understand. Yeah, so um, these are some more of Jesus's hard sayings. Uh, just threw us into the middle of not an easy conversation, um, but more of what Jesus has been saying throughout the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and then in last week's um, part about anger, and that is to not only maintain the law, but to take it even a step further and to address the heart and the heart behind these commands, um, not to commit adultery. Um, furthermore, not even to look at another man's wife um, with lust in your heart um, or another, you know, another person's spouse, um, either, either gender can be guilty of this. Um, and I think what, you know, what Jesus is saying here is, you have taken these laws and you have once again listened to them as the letter of the law. You've taken the meat out of it and only paid attention to the skeleton, to the letter of the law that says, don't go and commit adultery with another person's spouse. But Jesus is holding the people even more accountable saying, not only must you not do the, those actual actions of taking it um, to the point of adultery, but you can't even look lustfully at another person um, because doing that means that you've already committed adultery. And this is something that indicts most every human being alive, right? Because it's, it's that step further. It's saying you are not innocent of this because you know that you have looked at someone with desire who is not your spouse. And because you've done that, you are also guilty. Um, and so it's asking us as believers to look at our hearts and look at the ways that we have offended um, God and the ways that we have been unfaithful in our hearts, not just in our actions. Mm. Well, thanks a lot, Jenny. Rich? Yeah. Uh, I want to draw our minds to uh, verse 1 of this chapter, that mm -hmm. still Jesus is speaking to his disciples mm -hmm. uh, with the multitudes gathered around him and they are on the mount. And it means that uh, this very thing that we are looking at is a direct message from Christ to the church. 
uh, first and, and then to the world. And as we've just said, we've been asking the hard questions of whether are you a murderer? Uh, are you unfaithful in, in terms of maritally unfaithful? Uh, and all the, the difficult and hard pressing things that Jesus brings out uh, in this particular text. But for me, it still points to the idea that we looked at uh, from the verse 3 to 10, where he talks about the fact that those who are members of his uh, kingdom they acknowledge their own emptiness. They acknowledge their own uh, sin and their need uh, to be delivered by God and be reconciled with him. So he talks about the mourning, he talks about uh, the Paul in the spirit, and that this attitude of uh, recognizing your emptiness should result in a hunger not to last, but a hunger to be filled with righteousness. Mm. And, and that is what uh, it builds on to say that a life of righteousness is a life that is rich in mercy, is a life that is pure in heart, and is a life uh, that is uh, peace, peaceful, is a life that is built on peace. Mm. And here in this text, I think Jesus picks on one aspect of the righteousness that he talks about that surpasses uh, that of the Pharisees, uh, which is actually the nature of God, okay, that he is pure, he is holy. And I mean, go through scripture by scripture, uh, it tells you that God clearly is unique and is set apart from all other things uh, because he's sovereign and he's holy. There is none evil and there is none uh, nothing in him that we can hold uh, against him. And it's an interesting passage that I always looked at in John 5.30. Uh, Jesus said, I've seen the enemy coming, but he has nothing in me to claim. I, I wish I could say that confidently, that the devil could look at me and have no accusation, have nothing in me. But, but because of Jesus, uh, I am not condemned because the Bible says that those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. So it's not like I am without sin or I have no sin, but in Christ, uh, I am not condemned because the penalty of my sins have been fully paid yeah. for. And, and that is, that is the, the beauty of the life that Jesus brings here. And it speaks clearly to the church. Mm. That the church should be pure, mm. right? And the church should be seen to be married, to be faithful in their marriage, uh, because that's what he brings out over here. And is and and it's important. He says it because it is possible for us to reign, uh, uh, what you call strong Christian marriages. And the statistics are out there. Uh, there is a whole industry. Uh, that is built on lust. And mm. uh, there are statistics from uh, Christian organizations that actually uh, do surveys within the church that points to the fact that uh, strong sexual desire, which he talks about as looking lustfully, is something that the church really uh, suffers from. Mm. That uh, not only just members of the church, but there are even pastors who have been onto these sites uh, that, that supports the industries, uh, bills, 
uh, sexual lust in people. And lust is dangerous because it reminds me uh, of the story uh, in David's own house, yeah. uh, somewhere in Second Samuel, where one David's child, uh, his son, and his uh, daughter, uh, Almod and Telma, the mm. Bible talks about how destructive lust is. Uh, and Almod, the Bible says, after some time, uh, loved her sister, and even to the point that he was ill, he was sick to the point that, so it tells you that even on your, on your own physique, uh, lust uh, is destructive. And it does also affect the person that you lust after. Uh, so I think Jesus is cautioning uh, married, married people uh, and even those who are not married who are believers in the church and the world that we need to watch out for lust because it can destroy us physically and it can also destroy our relationship. And I think the last thing that Jesus points out to, uh, to us is that I mean, if you look at the people that he was speaking to, these are people who are been given laws and they are living their lives in accordance with the laws. Uh, to the extent that they think externally instead of inwardly when it comes to righteousness. That they look out for what they are doing or I, I have not actually been caught uh, being with another woman. But Jesus is saying that sin is not an external issue is an inward business yeah. uh, and that is that is very important uh, to the church and to the world uh, that God is looking on is is bringing us to account not on a basis of just what we do or what is actually going on within us inside yeah. of us wow. and and that is that is that is very key here that uh, Jesus says that sin uh, starts from within no uh, outside, not external. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, before I come to Sam, I just uh, saw something pretty relevant here from Ruby uh, Stewart. You said that I, I like that Jesus takes the law to the spirit of the law, as to the spirit of the law level. So, and she talks about when the Pharisees called the woman adultery. Uh, mm. Jesus used that, I mean, what Richard is saying, to let them understand that if each one is guilty, everyone is guilty of sin. Mm -hmm. Um, Sam, um, help us um, just under, uh, unpack this more. But then you can also look at the aspect where it says that if your right eye causes you to sin, you pluck it out. Talk about cutting away your right hand. <laughs> What's happening, sir? How should yeah, you so, we, uh, so we have to ask ourselves if Jesus is telling us to self-mutilate. Because <laughs> if you read this literally, it kind of starts to sound like it. Mm -hmm. You're like, Jesus, why are you telling me to pluck out my eyeball, man? That's not cool. <laughs> um, I think we have to be careful here because Jesus obviously doesn't want our eyes to simply be thrown from us. He wants our eyes to be purified. He wants our hands to be purified. Yeah. So if he's saying, he, he, he's using hyperbole here. He's not saying, oh, well, yes, physically you have to pluck your eyeball out and throw it away. No. He just got finished saying it's not about what outward appearances show you are doing. It is, all, it is first and foremost about what is in your heart, which flows out into what you do. So 
there, there's this quote I'm always drawn to when I am reading this passage by Dallas Willard. Uh, for those of you who don't know who that is, he's a he's an author who's done a lot of work on spiritual discipline, spiritual practice, cultivating the Christian postures of the heart. And he has a quote when he's referencing this passage, uh, Matthew 5, verses 29 and 30. And he says basically this, it wouldn't matter if you cut off, you know, your arms, your legs, everything, even down to the nubs, like a, bl- a bloody stump can still have a wicked heart. So that is, that is something that I think, at least for me, brings that passage home. And Jesus, as Rich mentioned, is constantly, I mean, this is the ongoing dialogue between him and the Pharisees and the Gospels. He's constantly pushing against, you know, this idea of piety and purity that is merely external. Because chances are that these Pharisees, uh, chances are that if the Pharisees were listening to this, they would be extremely offended. Um, Because there was probably a few of them to whom Jesus could have been speaking directly to them. And that's just something we have to keep in mind. Jesus is ma- Jesus is overemphasizing to make a point here. He's like, well, even you Pharisee could say, oh, if your hand touches this or that, you probably should cut it off. That sounds like something that you would say. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying something different. I'm redefining this whole entire debate and understanding of purity. Hmm. Wow. Thanks a lot, uh, Sam. Well, Philip. Yeah. Just to add to what Sam said, and Sam, you spoke that really well. Um, Jesus is in that passage uh, using a hyperbole, but what um, gets my attention is that the shocking image in, so, in some of Jesus's words is so heightened yeah. that you, it, it points to a truth and it points to it in such a um, powerful way, you could say. It elevates like the urgency, the seriousness and the need for a radical obedience or going above and beyond uh, to the underlying message that Jesus is trying to say. For example, in a passage in... Uh, John chapter 6, Jesus says, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Mm. Now, Jesus obviously is not condoning like a a cannibalistic ritual Mm. of eating, literally eating his flesh and drinking of my blood. But he's saying that, you know, it's not merely enough that you follow me and obey my words, but you go above and beyond. You need to partake of me. Mm. You need to have, you need to be abiding in me, taking my nature my spirit, my mind is that I must consume you. Mm. And so you see how Jesus is driving that point with these sort of shocking images and shocking words that he says. So going back to uh, this passage, uh, I think there are three things you could point out that Jesus is trying to emphasize. First of all, he's saying sin is a very, very serious issue. Mm. Uh, And it's removal of from your life must be top priority. Like how you would treat 
for example, if you had cancer or if you had poison running in your body, how would you react? Yeah. You know, and it's not that uh, we are completely sin free, but we have dominion over it. You know, we must address it if there is a persistent sin issue in our lives. And one of the deceptions, this is a very, very um, common deception that's going around that when we have sin in our lives, we get desensitized thinking that it is not such a big deal because we see it all around. We see it everywhere. We see it in, the, in our friends, perhaps, in our family. And we think it's not a big deal. And that's such a great deception. The devil makes you think that sin, you know, is not like a cancer. It's not like poison. It's just a cold. It'll, it'll be there. You're not going to be able to get rid of it. But that's not true. So then that's a lie. And that is why Jesus had to be graphic in his language. He's saying, whatever it takes for you to overcome sin, do it. Focus all your energy and effort as you would do if you had cancer or poison in your body. And so in effect, he's saying is if, if physical maiming and uh, as Sam said, self-mutilation is what it takes for you, then so be it. That's almost to the point of what Jesus is saying. Uh, second thing is Jesus warns us of the dangers of hell. Hell is real. It reinforces the fact that the wages of sin is death. Mm-hmm. That if we do not deal with it with the help of the Holy Spirit, See, our destiny is either eternity with God or eternity away from God. So Jesus is reinforcing the reality of what sin would lead to. Thirdly, he's saying, also saying our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We use our bodies to glorify God and we don't use it to satisfy our own lust. And so Jesus is saying, your body is so sacred. It is not just your spirit, your soul, but your body also is sacred, though it is a temporary uh, shelter for you in this earth and Jesus is saying since your body is a temple and I wish to dwell in this temple your temple must be kept pure and Jesus is saying I rather have this temple being somewhat partially destroyed I rather have this temple maimed in some way rather than have this temple desecrated by sin Mm. so rather have this beautiful body with six packs or whatever you know that's that's not the point. It's the fact that our bodies have to be kept pure for God. Hmm. And Jesus is driving home the point that this temple needs to be pure. It doesn't have to be perfect on the outside, but it does need to be perfect on the inside. And so in conclusion, I would just add First um, Corinthians chapter 6, you know, verses 18 through 20. This is the only sin in the Bible, sexual sin, where the Bible says flee. It says run. Yeah. Not just merely avoid, not just merely turn away or turn the other side, run from it. The image that comes to my mind is Joseph, mm. because when he was with Potiphar's wife and she's still holding his robe, is almost getting into the act of sin, but he just flees from that scene, yeah. runs the other way. So it's important that we understand sin, especially sexual sin. We don't try to contain it, manage it, or try to sort of deal with it. We, we flee from it. That's the idea. So we cannot excuse in any way, excuse ourselves in any way by saying, you know, it's okay. This is a part of my human nature. And if, you know, my body needs this sort of sexual release, I don't know, once a week or whatever it is, you know, the world is saying, it is not true. It's just simply not true. We cannot give even that small window for this particular, you know, sexual sin. So, uh, you know, our eternity depends on it. 
And with the help of the Holy Spirit, it is possible to overcome this. Wow. And I've experienced it myself. Whether it's just those cursory glances, you know, those leering looks, um, the occasional lusting of the flesh, or whether, or it could be a persistent addiction, like full-on addiction to pornography or masturbation, whatever it is. The Holy Spirit has a power yeah. to undo all of that yeah. and to kind of turn us around. Yeah. And so that in the future we'll be able to flee from this. And that is so important for a walk with God. Wow. Wow. Thanks a lot, um, Philip. Great comments. Um, edifying um, comments um, from you all. I appreciate you. Well, um, what I would uh, say before I will move to the subject of divorce and um, even adultery, the second part. Um, I like spiritual warfare. I like praying, you know, against demonic forces. I mean, every Christian uh, does that. And one passage that really touches me when it comes to uh, scripture, I mean, spiritual warfare is actually Second uh, uh, Corinthians 10, uh, where Paul talks about our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You know, when you end there, it sounds like a very nice way of fighting, of, of battling or praying against external forces and demonic um, powers. But then when you continue, it says that uh, casting down imaginations or arguments or any high thing that rises itself against the knowledge of God, right? And then that taking captive of every thought and bringing it to obedience to Christ. You know, so if, if you want to fight, it's not just about external battles, it's not about the principalities out there. This scripture is telling us that there, are, there is a battle, a battle going on in your mind. There's a battle that goes on in your heart. Now we talk about the, the link between the heart and the mind. So one of the key ways to really fight is to use the word of God and then use it as the reason that God has given you to overturn, overcome the reason that the pop culture or the popular you know, um, reasoning has also given you. So what, what does our world say? That most, I mean, most of the things that we see uh, tell, tell us that women are used most of the time as objects or are seen or are viewed as objects of what? Self-gratification. But Jesus is saying that that is not the case. All right? And then as all that you said gives us reasons that the Bible has you know, given us to use to overcome all these ideas, these misconceptions about the personhood of women. And then uh, the other thing that really touches me is also has to do with the way Jesus puts it. Puts it. I Jenny talked about it, that the fact that everybody is vulnerable. Uh, if you look at the, uh, um, the story of the woman caught in adultery, you, know, you could see that even in church history, I've heard, read a lot which, which talks about the fact that people victimized women when it comes to some of these things. They always felt that the women, by the way they appear or by the way they look, you know, were just occasions for lust or, you know, they were the cause of the problem. But if you look at the words of Jesus, like he affirms the dignity of women. And at the same time, he affirms the vulnerability of every person. He actually uh, makes it clear that whether you are a man or woman, you don't have to catch a woman in adultery. You also can be caught in adultery by God himself. Uh, mm -hmm. No wonder the people could not cast the stone uh, at the woman. All right. So he now places the responsibility at your doorstep, at the man. Now, or, or the person who is listening, you are the one doing the looking. So why are you looking? If you look with that lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. So it's no more about the person, 
and how he looks. We are not holding brief for provocative dressing or anything, but here, Jesus is bringing the responsibility to the one listening to him. So you are listening so that you, when you look, why are you looking? Are you lasting after the person? Then you have a committed adult. So that is one thing that really strikes me, that the way Jesus validates the dignity, I mean, he validates the, 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 you know, the personhood, uh, the, the value of women, even in this scripture, really um, uh, touches me. So that's, that's what I, could, uh, I can add. And then let's look at the other part where it talks about uh, divorce and then um, adultery. Now in verse um, 31, this is the furthermore it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give, him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality calls her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Jenny, uh, now, what, what do we get about Jesus' view of divorce and marriage and even adultery from the scripture? Yeah, um, first I'll say thank you for your comments about Jesus' validation of the dignity of women. Um, I was going to bring that up, but I think that's something that when you, <clears throat> sorry, this is going back to the last question, but <clears throat> looking at the responsibility Jesus puts on the person doing the lusting and saying, you can't blame anyone else for this. This is your own eye, your own hand, and that is what you need to sacrifice, not the person who you believe caused you to stumble. Um, and I would also just note that though it is a hyperbole and Jesus does not mean to rip out our eye and cut off our hand, I do think Jesus used that shocking language to actually bring to our attention that this does require some kind of sacrifice of something that you might consider to be essential to living, as essential as your eye or your hand. And this, in our day and age, could be your smartphone, could be your computer. This could mean that those are a temptation for you, and so maybe you need to only allow yourself to use those with your spouse or someone else in the room to keep you accountable. Um, this could be a certain place that you go that you know leads you into a temptation and cutting that out of your life. And, you know, it may look weird to the people around you, but Jesus is saying that sacrifice is worth it because if you don't cut that out, then this is going to get in the way of your relationship with God in the end. And I think that's the seriousness of this of him talking about, you know, if you don't cut this away, you're going to be in danger of the fires of hell. Like that is the, the root of this is that it, it's not just about your relationship with other people. It's coming back to that. Our relationship with God is also through our relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. And we can't just pretend that when we are doing things that are harmful and sinful towards others, that it's not going to affect our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, I mean, though there is, you know, in our Bibles now we have verse numbers and we have um, subtitles and things. So we, we see this as adultery and then divorce mm -hmm. I think it can and should be read as one narrative. Jesus didn't, you know, stop and say, okay, now I'm going to talk about a divorce. We finished adultery. Let's move on to divorce. Um, I think it's, it's all one narrative that goes together here of saying um, this is, this heart issue is what is at the core of um, divorce is that, you know, and I, I would also note that this, that talking about divorce in our society, I think is, can be a tricky and really difficult um, topic and that we do need to handle it 
carefully and with grace um, because sometimes these verses especially have been used against women um, to tell women that they need to stay in abusive marriages and abusive relationships where her husband is not honoring her or showing her dignity or um, the kind of love that God requires and expects. Um, so I will, I will say that, but I will also say, you know, Jesus does take marriage very seriously and um, calls us to lay down our lives for one another. Um, and so when Jesus talks about divorce here, it's, um, it's addressing once again, this, this attitude um, of the Pharisees and of some of the people um, that Jesus was talking to who thought, you know, if it's legal, it's okay. Um, it was legal in this time for a man to divorce his wife and give her this certificate of divorce. And then later in Matthew 19, we ha- we hear from Jesus talking about, you know, Moses um, said that he permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Um, but it was not this way from the beginning that allowing that to happen was not God's intent and it was not God's um, plan for marriage, but because of the sinfulness of our hearts and the hardness of our hearts, um, God allowed for that to be, you know, an option, uh, but it's not the first option. And so I would say that Jesus's purpose in declaring this um, and taking divorce this seriously was not to disenfranchise or oppress women. It was actually the opposite. It was preventing the covering of the moral failure of her husband who was saying, it's okay if I, you know, divorce her and go marry another woman because I'm at least doing it legally and that's allowed. So it's okay. Um, And what that would do if a man did that would be to leave a woman defenseless and destitute because women weren't allowed to work and women weren't considered um, fully human in society in the times when um, Jesus said these things. And so a woman's only option was to go marry someone else, um, whether or not she wanted to do that. And so um, Jesus's care and concern here is is for the sanctity of marriage, but it's also for the vulnerable um, and for the woman who would be left without a voice um, if a man was to, to do this to her and to lust after another woman to the point of divorcing her. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Rich. Yeah. It's a, a very difficult passage to really <laughs> examine, but there's truth in there uh, in terms of Jesus views about uh, divorce and remarriage. And uh, it's clear here that, as uh, Jen clearly indicated, that uh, Jesus is saying that we should commit ourselves to our marital commitment that we have, especially to the church, especially to the church. Because, uh, you know, the marriage has been... uh, linked to the relationship that exists between Christ and the church in in Ephesians. And (laughs) it's important we know in 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about the fact that love never fails. Love does not fail. Mm. And for that matter, the Christian marriage uh, is is the only thing that the world can use to at least have a glimpse of God's love 
and how the love of God really, I mean, we can share the story of Christ, but the Christian marriage is a, is a better portrayal, mm. okay, of what God's love really is. When we say God's love never fails. Mm. And I think here Jesus is saying that uh, the Christian marriage uh, should hold on to those uh, tenets and, and to those uh, beliefs. Uh, for the world to see and to fully demonstrate God's love uh, to the world by loving each with each other as spouse. Yeah. Uh, I know it's a very difficult thing, but I think Jesus doesn't miss words by saying that yeah. uh, it is never in God's original intent. The marriages uh, as, uh, do not work. It is never in God's intent that when marriages do not work, we remarried, and mm-hmm. uh, and that 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 will be that's very difficult. And if you go into Corinthians, uh, I think uh, Paul even said bluntly that to the married, to those who are married and have separated, that they must uh, go back to reconcile. And here, even though Jesus is using the woman. Uh, don't be mistaken that it doesn't apply to the man. Mm. Because in First uh, First Corinthians 7, 10, 11, Paul clearly says that, that even when the uh, a woman the woman should be reconciled to the husband, and he says in verse 11 that the, the husband must also be reconciled uh, to the, uh, the, the wife. So in God's mind, if the Christians come together, and I see marriage as uh, two imperfect lives before a perfect one, mm. right? Trying to mimic to the world or portray to the world the death of God's love. And that is not an easy thing. <laughs> you understand that? That is not an easy thing, especially on the part of the man when, God, when the scripture says that, love your wife. Mm. And it talks about. Uh, sanctifying her with the word of God. That is, cause her to be admired uh, so that you'll always desire her and you always want to be uh, in that commitment, in that fellowship uh, with him. So I think uh, as a man and as a husband uh, and a Christian husband, I would say that there is heavy on the man uh, to actually not feel God. Mm. Uh, in his mm. marriage, uh, mm. in this in this regard, I even though at times we talked about the fact that in Ephesians uh, five, that the Bible says that a woman should submit. I think the man's job, the husband's role, is key uh, in this very regard. So mm. we don't expect in the Christian home or in a Christian marriage that the husband become abusive at all, because you already have a very high command from God. Uh, to keep this marriage going mm. and to make sure that it's a seed. So that is that is why I see the emphasis yeah. in Jesus' words uh, using the man. Mm. That the man should not, under any circumstances, all right, cause the marriage to fail. Mm. Because that is that is what uh, I picked here. Because it says okay. that it was the men in the in those times that were given the certificates of divorce, right? Yeah. Uh, where 
And Jesus in verse uh, Matthew 19 says that it was because of the hardening of your heart. Mm. That is why Moses gave you that window. Mm. But it doesn't mean that God approves of it. Mm. All right, so the, for the Christian husband, uh, when you read this passage, <laughs> you always have to pray for mercy and grace. <laughs> Uh, because because it's this this verse actually talks about the two components of the righteousness that Jesus is talking about mm. being a peacemaker and being merciful mm. right and if you read the entire uh, this sermon it talks about the father is merciful and you also should be one merciful, merciful. Yeah. so so the as a, as a Christian husband, I feel a lot of burden. Okay. And I, I feel a lot of uh, that, that need to pray for grace every day uh, to be able to be merciful, all right, and to be able to be a peacemaker mm. in my marriage, exhibiting yeah. this nature of God, uh, continually nurturing uh, my marital relationship uh, in a manner that will review God's character and reveal the heart of God. Yeah. And that is critical. Uh, because I, I see in the text that people will look at the grounds for divorce, where Jesus says that, except for marital unfaithfulness. But in this particular program, we've talked about the peacemaker, right? Yeah. And we've talked about the peacemaker being proactive. Okay. Right? And even though the peacemaker is offended, he, he or she always sought to what? reconcile. Okay. And it's interesting that the Bible says that we've not been given any ministry, but it's a ministry of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So I, I, I want to call on Christian husbands uh, that God is putting a lot of weight yeah. on us and a lot of responsibility on us. Okay. Uh, and we cannot disappoint him. We cannot oh, we disappoint. Need it. Thanks a lot. Uh, no wonder um, Hebrews 13, 4 says that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. And he says yeah. that uh, fornicating adulterers, God will judge. And even Ephesians 5, you know, before he talks about husbands loving and wives submitting, he says that each of you should submit, should submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. So, I mean, that, is, that helps us a lot. Now, with the exception clause, you mentioned it, uh, it talks about a bit, but uh, some... Um, Help us. I hope. I mean, I think Rich has made made it pretty clear that it doesn't weaken the argument or the uh, the point about marriage. Yeah. No, it it doesn't at all. In fact, I think Jesus' point is not at all to undermine the sanctity of it, but protect it. Um, I mean, and Jenny mentioned in Matthew chapter nineteen, not only, um, I mean, Jesus is very, very much firm on what he thinks about divorce. He thinks it goes against the grain of creation. From the beginning, it was not so, he says to the Pharisees. And y'all are just a bunch of compromisers because your hearts were hard. Mm. Um, That's a really, really offensive thing. Jesus is really offensive. Um, But he's not here saying that he... I guess one way to say this is he's not giving this as simply just an escape hatch because we've also talked about um 
because some one could interpret this and just say, you know, this whole forgiveness thing is off the table. Mm. Jesus here is giving me a reason to say, you know, there can't like, and this word he uses here, porneia, can mean a ton of different things. Mm. Um, it's sexual immorality on the surface, but it's also, it, it's used in the New Testament to mean a ton of different things. Um, and Jesus, what Jesus, we also have to remember that Jesus is, is all about the reconciliation of all things. So when we read this exception clause, we can say, yes, marriage, the fact is, is that human beings in the marriage are capable of doing this, yeah. are capable of wrecking their relationships. But we also have to remember that there is something greater that has been and is being accomplished by Christ. And that's not, and this, this is what Jenny mentioned. It is so important to be pastoral in this situation mm -hmm. because there just simply are some relationships that are unfortunately broken beyond repair. Mm. Um, and cannot be reconciled. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. But but that is but what what we shouldn't ever do is exclude the possibility of reconciliation from the get go. We can't use this exception clause as an escape hatch. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So quickly, um, Philip, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll just quickly say. Uh, Based on what Jesus said, you know, he he does not make divorce uh, on the grounds of adultery command. He's not saying, okay, if there has been sexual infidelity, go get a divorce. He's not saying that. And as Sam, I want to reinforce what Sam said because it's so important. God is a God of restoration, of reconciliation, and that's priority, you know. But Jesus does imply, and he says that based on sexual infidelity, um, uh, divorce is condoned as the last course of action, not the first, not even I would say the second, third, fourth, but as the last resort, because we know from the word that God hates divorce. Mm. It, is, it is not something that God is really pleased about. Mm. But there are again cases where you know, it's, it's the last resort. Yeah. And let me just give a couple of examples. One is, that is, if there is a case of adultery and the person has, you know, adultery means the covenant is broken. Mm -hmm. Divorce is kind of like, in a sense, in God's eyes, a divorce has happened, but God wants to restore. Mm -hmm. But what if in one party, the, one party does not want to reconcile and has moved on and is adamant and stubborn in moving on and does have no intention yeah. of coming back. I take the example of the, of the father and the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. When the prodigal son wanted to leave, God didn't like hold him by the hand and be like, I need you here. You, you're going to have to love me. You're going to have to stay here. Mm -hmm. God is a gentleman. He does yeah. not force or thrust his love upon us. And so, yes, we, we do all that we can to reconcile and to restore the marriage if there's brokenness, yeah. if there's infidelity. But if one party is like, 
I, I don't want this anymore and I'm moving on, then the covenant is broken and we, right. and then we have to prayerfully decide what is the next course of action. And I want to end with just one small thing. And this is a, a sort of a personal story, but I think it hits home in some ways. And maybe people will take different things from this. My own family, my parents went through a divorce um, when I was 14. Um, and my, my dad initiated the, the, the divorce. Now, it wasn't on grounds of sexual immorality. It was on other grounds. So what happened was there was a rift in the family and you know, all of us suffered because of it. But what I want to drive home is at the end of the day, my mom, who was a victim of the divorce, she stayed with it till the end. She did not leave. She did not choose to stop loving my dad. And she always pursued reconciliation. And the miracle of that is, you know, and in my <laughs> in my family, especially with my dad and mom, there was a lot of abuse. There was a lot of verbal abuse, moderate amounts of physical abuse as well. But what I admired at the end of the day was the steadfastness and the nobility of the strength of character of my mom that she stayed with it till the end. And, and my dad completely changed through the process. Mm. He went from went from night to day, the transformation of character that I saw because my mom just was resolute. She knew that this divorce was not God's plan. She stuck with it till the end and they were remarried after more than 10 years, I believe. And they're back together and they're very happy. Mm-hmm. So yes, there are uh, cases when it's divorces that last option, but I think there's something beautiful there's something just absolutely divine Mm. when one party says um you know if this divorce does not conform to biblical standards i'm going to fight for this till the end there's a beauty in that and the beauty is that the transformation of an individual from night to day and uh, that is something that we should also consider yeah thanks a lot um for that um now based on your thought i just want to offer something more pastoral, as um, Sam was saying, that in a situation like that, what I real, realized is that, you know, realistically, when there is an abuse or physical abuse, the reason why, is, if it's not like divorce is not even a last option, but in terms of physical abuse where one party is in danger, even separation is, you know, um, advisable so that the person will be protected. What I realized is that... Um, God says that our bodies are his temple, right? So you owe it to God and to your children, even to yourself, to preserve his temple when you are facing abuse. So in the situation where, of course, in the exceptional case where there is abuse and there is this kind of uh, life-threatening situation, even not, if it's not divorce, that, that, there's a, that kind of separation that helps healing to take, to take place for the, for the mm-hmm. person to really get time and pray and uh, continue to you know hold on and hopefully that person the other party will repent and then come back so it's very important for us to just bring all this in and i thank you lo- uh, very much for that um, testimony it helps us to understand that when we continue to hold on and we actually tap into the grace of god going to pray our character can tra- transform and even convict our our spouses um the- just add to that ebenezer yes uh- I think separation is 
different from divorce. Yeah, 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 yeah. That actually what you said is very true, that if there is physical abuse, verbal abuse, and your life is in danger, you do have to separate yourself. But still in that, you don't take an impulsive decision towards divorce. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. still requires separation, reflection. Yeah. Yeah. And then if, if that is the only option, yes, you yeah. know. And, and thanks a lot. Now, um, before we, now we couldn't really deal too much with the other part, but there's this other, other aspect about a divorce, why God says that if you remarry is, or, you know, adultery, the fact that God puts you together and in the eyes of God, you are one. So even if you're a man and you try and put asunder, because in the eyes of God, you are one, you're just doing what is uh, humanly, you know, possible. You're trying to do it, but it's not possible, you know, divinely speaking. And so that is one thing I kind of picked about the fact that you are still committing adultery if you kind of separate yourself and attach yourself to someone else. And yeah, so thanks a lot. Now let's move to the last aspect. Um, because of time, I'll just talk a bit about the let your yes be yes and your no to be no. Uh, Jenny, uh, before I just come to you, I, I, I kind of feel when we take someone as our spouses, we say that truly we are going to do, um, we're going to take care of the person, we're going to stay with the person, we're going to really preserve and honor the person. And so it's like when we say yes before God that way, we owe it to God, we are obliged to just follow through and make sure that we fulfill what we have said. But Jenny, um, your, your comment on that quickly and then we try and then round it up. <laughs> yeah, I'll try to be quick-ish. Um. <laughs> I just had a couple of things to say about the thing we were just talking about. Um, I would know that I definitely appreciate you guys bringing up that this is a difficult conversation for especially women in situations of abuse, which unfortunately 22% of women in America have experienced um, this kind of abuse in relationships. And so I would note that it's not always as easy um, as looking at the surface and saying you should stay or even you should separate. Um, and I know that's a difficult thing to hear and to understand, but from talking to women who have been in those situations, it is very difficult for them to leave, mm -hmm. especially if there are children involved. Um, and because mm -hmm. it is a situation of control, generally the abuser is controlling not only um you know, her actions, but also finances and things that require her to stay with him. And so I think as Christians and as believers in the church, we are always called to be on the side of the oppressed, not the oppressor. Um, and so believing women's stories and men when they come forward about abuse in a relationship, I think is our first role um, before we step in and say, you must stay in this relationship. It's first our responsibility to hear them out and to help them get out of a dangerous situation because for them to even come forward and t talk about that is very difficult um, psychologically and emotionally. Right. And yeah. And I mean, I have never been in those situations, so it's hard for me to imagine, but I know people who have and um, yeah, that's just a pastoral word. Um, okay. I will say, yeah. And so thinking about, about oaths and about yes and no, and about that in the context of marriage as well is that, you know, that is um, a commitment and all of our commitments, Jesus is saying, Jesus goes, I think it's interesting 
from talking about something as serious as your yes and no in marriage to talking about your yes and no in general. Um, to, to draw us along and help us to see that commitments are important um, to God and that they extend far beyond what the culture expects. Mm-hmm. Um, it demands mm-hmm. our very hearts um, and, and demands the hearts of, of our actions to be pure and not just that our yes be something that we believe we can swear on something to make it sound uh, better. It's, mm-hmm. you know, if our yes is not backed up by our actions and by our heart, um, then there's no point in, in swearing. There's no point in saying yes in the first place. Um, okay. Thanks a lot. Um, I'm really grateful. Unfortunately, we couldn't really finish <laughs> uh, today. There's been a lot uh, to analyze and discuss. But I'm very sure you have been blessed and I've really learned a lot um, from today's discussion. And God bless you for joining us. Uh, we'll just play with us quickly. And after that, uh, of course, our uh, theme song will follow. The, the point we always keep on hammering and emphasizing that it's really the condition of your heart that will uh, impact the way you apply these uh, scriptures. And my prayer is that um, all that we have said, you just uh, pray about it and ask the Lord to help you. And then even as the song goes, make, let Jesus make your heart his home. And then uh, when you, you, are, you do that, he would guide you to fulfill these scriptures. Um, God willing, next week uh, at 12 p.m. at Central Time, we'll continue. Uh, but before we go, I said, let's, let's pray quickly. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, we bless you for this time. We thank you for your word. Help us um, to please you and then apply these teachings into our lives and remind us, Holy Spirit, um, of all these truths in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Jesus. 